I'm reading today uh, from John and the trial of Jesus. And I'd like to read a small portion of it. We can't uh, really do the whole trial. <clears throat> and it's a little bit surprising how much detail there is about the trial. But let me do this small portion and then I'll talk about uh, the trial in general. Starting in uh, chapter 19, verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. <clears throat> Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. <coughs> Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. <clears throat> The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, <clears throat> because he made himself out to be the Son of God. <clears throat> Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? <clears throat> but Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. John in this gospel is presenting a particular scene or character very often to make a theological point. He's not just telling this story uh, to tell it, but he wants to, he's taking us someplace that he says at the end of the gospel is to believe that Jesus is the Christ. So we have these various scenes, you know, in the beginning of the gospel, the language from Genesis echoing the creation and then the first seven days of the ministry of Jesus recounting what seemed to be the order of recreation and then the purposes of Israel in John the Baptist transition to Jesus fulfilled and then each day after a new disciple and a new dimension to the kingdom are added with the consummation of the wedding feast, you know, at Cana, a kind of picture of the wedding feast of the Lamb. That is, John's painting these pictures for us of recreation, that it's of theological importance. Uh, you know, think of the cleansing of the temple, the microcosmos is symbolically cleansed as Christ declares he is the true temple. Think of the seven miracles recorded in John in the first half of the book, which seemed to correspond to the miracles of the Exodus, in which Jesus is leading 
people out of slavery. Very similar, but now it's the slavery to sin instead of the slavery uh, to Egypt. So throughout the gospel, Jesus or, or John is introducing significant people, significant scenes to draw out a theological, uh, something of theological importance. And I think that's what he's doing here with the case of the trial of Jesus. He's painting the scene and uh, we are to draw something of theological significance because it's one of the largest you know if you think of John the longest portion of John is given over to the passion of Jesus and this is one of the key scenes in the passion you know the trial of Jesus and Pilate then Rome's prime representative is introduced in a great you know a lot of detail and so as the trial of Jesus unfolds, several issues are going to come about, uh, be raised. The issue of truth. Pilate will say, well, what is truth? The issue of God's kingdom versus the kingdom of man. And the issue of law and justice are dealt with throughout the trial. And so we're given a snapshot of how the kingdom of Christ and all that that entails stands in relation to the kingdom of this world and all that that entails. And I use the word singular kingdom here because actually Rome is the singular kingdom, right? They are uh, ruling the world. And even Jews in the midst of this trial, the high priests and the leaders are going to say, we have no king but Caesar. Think of this as a kind of blasphemy on their part because in their theophanous, you know, in a, a theophany or, or a theocratic government rudder, uh, it would be God who is their true king and they're saying, no, Caesar's our true king. Um, if we're thinking in terms of the law, you know, think here of the law as Paul talks about it, that due to its corruption in sin, whether it's the law of Rome or Israel, the law written on the heart, all of these laws are going to fuse, I believe, together in the trial of Jesus. Uh, I believe that it's the law of sin and death that's come up against Christ. And it is this law that we see exposed, what it would do to God in its intent toward Christ. Now, there are two ways of understanding the trial. And I think two the, these two ways give us two theological interpretations. In one version, Roman law and God's law are united in their purpose to bring about the death of Jesus. That is, God is simply working out his providential intent to punish Jesus under the law so that he might be punished for sin. In this understanding... Rome is not in rebellion, and human law and justice are perfectly adequate for God's purposes. Rome and the church will in fact unite under Emperor Constantine. And this Constantinian Christianity imagines that human law, justice, and government are in accord with God's purposes in Christ. And in this understanding, the economy of salvation accords with the economy of human cultures and nations 
so that salvation comes through Constantinian Rome or perhaps through Christian America. In this understanding, when Pilate is tempted, and that's what is happening throughout the trial, he'll keep coming out and say, there's no guilt in this man. He's tempted to free Jesus. He wants to free Jesus because he declares there's no case against him. Martin Luther said, oh, look, Pilate is being tempted by Satan. Remember Pilate's wife in the dream warns him, have nothing to do with this Nazarene. And he takes this to heart, we believe. Luther explains this dream was a demon's intervention seeking to impede the crucifixion. That is, to halt the trial or prevent the death of Christ in this, I think, wrong understanding would be to subvert the divine economy of salvation. In this understanding, Pilate, Judas, the Jews, the Romans, all line up as part of God's effort to have Jesus punished. Think here of Jesus' words to Judas. Do quickly what you are going to do. We would, in this understanding, we would see even the evil spirit, and that's what it says, you know, that at this point Satan came into the heart of Judas, that even Satan in his possessing of Judas is in some way doing the work of God under this misunderstood view. In this understanding, God's sovereign purposes are always being worked out in history through evil, even. So rather than seeing the trial of Jesus as a clash of powers, this reading presumes that God is the puppet master. Pulling the strings, you know, good and evil are not really opposed to one another. All things are working together for good, to misquote Paul. As Dante will describe the trial, he says it was under a lawful procedure bringing about a just punishment. The divine economy is being worked out through the human procedure, that is. What I want to suggest is the proper reading of the trial is to see the human economy, human government, human notions of law and justice as coming into conflict with the divine economy of salvation. And in a sense, the person of Pilate clues us into this conflict Because he's a man thrown into conflict throughout this trial, isn't he? If Pilate were merely a cog in the execution and punishment of Christ, why this prolonged encounter, you know, with Jesus, in which they'll have a series of conversations discussing the kingdom, sovereignty, and Pilate seems up to the end, you know, he's really convinced that Jesus is king of the Jews. And Jesus wants to convince him of his innocence. Why would this be taking place if it's this simplistic understanding that, you know, because Pilate, I think, shows us that in the trial of Jesus and in the Gospel of John, something very different is taking place than this simplistic understanding. For one thing, in the trial and in the whole Gospel of John, there are two Greek words that are never used, crisis and creon, for judgment. 
They're completely absent. There is no judgment ever declared at the trial of Jesus. Did you know that? In place of judgment, it says he was handed over. And in this handing over, you know, this is the same thing as Judas did when he kisses him in the garden uh, by kissing Jesus, it says in Mark, he hands him over to the Jews. In the gospel, this is the way it's betrayed. The one who hands over is the betrayer. Uh, Judas Iscariot, Matthew says, who handed him over. Judas Iscariot, who handed him over. And in their turn, the Jews hand over Jesus to Pilate. If this, John says, if this man, the Jews rather say, if this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. So the word, the the language here becomes theologically significant because what's going to happen at the end of the trial, no judgment, Pilate is just going to hand Jesus over to the Jews and the Jews are going to hand him over to death. Uh, This handing over is completely lacking in any judgment or punishment and even beyond this there is an ambiguity throughout the trial as to who's running things who is the judge and who is being judged Jesus is not being judged by Pilate in any formal sense as Pilate is going to refuse he says I cannot pronounce judgment (laughs) Pilate is attempting to follow his wife's advice have nothing to do with this man and he you know, ritualistically washes his hands of the affair by turning the matter over to the Jews. He suggests, you take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And maybe this is more of a taunt on the part of Pilate, for he knows they have no power to crucify. They can't pass capital punishment, and their own law would not allow them to crucify someone anyway. Pilate says there is no case. There is no case. He says it a couple of times. And he cannot pass judgment. And maybe we're a little bit mistaken. I'm going to continue to call it a trial. But is it really a trial where there's no judgment declared? In other words, Pilate is refusing to give Jesus a trial. He's saying there can't be a trial because I've already declared he's innocent. And then when the Jews begin to yell, crucify him, Pilate again says, well, there's no case against him. And then the Jewish leaders suggest, well, he's not just broken Roman law. It's not just sedition against, you know, uh, the, the Roman emperor, but he's broken Jewish law by claiming to be the son of God. That's the passage we read. And did you get Pilate's reaction there? It says that he became even more afraid. And I think the reason he becomes more afraid is that Son of God is the title the emperor takes to himself. Pilate is the representative of the emperor. I think he knows that's a fairly false claim on the part of the emperor, but now Jesus is saying, the Jews are saying he's the son of God. I think Pilate is torn as to whose side he wants to be on. And maybe as we identify with his struggle, you know, this is even in the the creedal formulas, and even Luke, 
when we identify the time period, they will always say, Jesus crucified under Pilate. Pilate is given a lot of room in the gospel. And I think part of the reason is the notion of law, of sovereignty, are going to be forever thrown into question. They are going to be disconnected from their presumed divine authority. You know, Caesar says, I'm the son of God. He used the phrase, the prince of peace. Caesar called himself the prince of peace. And he says these things through some sort of theological divine claim. I think that after Christ, no sovereign will ever be able to do that in a legitimate fashion again. And so Pilate declares there's no case. He cannot judge. He has Jesus paraded out in his royal purple robes, his mock crown. And he says, behold, the man. And Jesus has been beaten. He's bleeding. It seems like Pilate, and this is the way John interprets it, he wants to have Jesus completely humiliated to reduced in the to be reduced in the estimation of the crowd. That is, it's almost like he's going to reduce him to, to such a degree that they'll say, hey, this man's no threat, and they won't want to kill him. But of course, in doing this, Pilate's own life, this is what he feared in his wife's dream, his own life has been slid onto the scale of judgment. Who's being judged? Pilate suddenly feels like he's the one being judged. Uh, his, you know, the claim, son of God, this is the authority that he's doing this under. The, the whole attempt, the mock king, you know, Jesus is raising the question as to the power of what is real sovereignty. What is the real kingdom? Look at the man, Pilate seems to be saying. There's nothing there, right? And of course it all backfires. And when he goes back, he, it says there's a lot of entering and going in and out in this trial. And when he goes back into the praetorium to question Jesus further, he says, don't you know that I have the power in this situation. I have the power to release you or to crucify you. And of course the question behind the question. Who's calling the shots here Jesus? Don't you understand I'm the one controlling things? And the implication is. No you're not. And Jesus says as much. You have no power over me whatsoever. You don't have power of you other than that what's been granted to you from the source of the place. You know, he doesn't say this, but this is the implication that my own kingdom comes. And so when Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? He says, well, you're the one that said as much. And that's what he keeps doing, right? He keeps, he's going to, remember, put up the sign on the cross. You remember this at the end? In three languages. King of the Jews. Throughout the trial, he brings Jesus out and he said, Look, King of the Jews. He does it twice. And when the Sanhedrin sends to Pilate and said, Well, the sign on the cross should say he claimed to be King of the Jews, Pilate says, What I've written, I've written. I think Pilate thinks Jesus is the rightful King of the Judeans. 
Um, in this discussion, Jesus acknowledges. He says, yes, I am a king, but my kingdom is not from this world. Now, sometimes I think we misunderstand this. This is, doesn't mean my kingdom is not of this world or from, you know. He means that my kingdom has its origins from elsewhere. It is a legitimate kingdom. Caesar claims his kingdom is from heaven, but my kingdom really is from heaven. But it's not that the kingdom, uh, you know, it, it, the incarnation, this very moment in the trial, it's clearly an earthly kingdom. We pray this, right, in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's an earthly kingdom that Jesus is establishing, the church. And so the brief exchange leaves Pilate in a panic. And at this point it says he wished to have Jesus released. And the Jews then pull their trump card and they say, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. And that's, here's the rub, right? Now Pilate is faced with the choice, Caesar or Christ? And maybe this is the choice we all faced. The kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven and we're forced to choose. You know, what kingdom do I serve? Um, the new Jerusalem is pictured as coming from heaven to earth. And I, we believe that the church itself, at least in, a, in an all-millennial kind of understanding, that the church and the kingdom are identified. But in some way, this is uh, the kingdom of Christ. So Pilate, and Jesus is saying this, Pilate is feeling his powerlessness against this kingdom. And Jesus says, your powerlessness is evident. He says, the ones who delivered you to me have the greater guilt. And so Pilate keeps his concerted effort is not to pass judgment, to not have a trial. And it's funny that Jesus is ready to judge Pilate and ready to judge those who come up against him. And his judgment is not just this law. He says they've, they're guilty of greater sin. There's a kind of eternal judgment being passed upon them. And this is, of course, his whole ministry, right? But the judgment is now. Salvation is at hand. Whatever you do with me, this is your, the determination of the judgment. And so those who have delivered me to you are worse off according to eternal judgments. But Pilate, Jesus is saying to him, your claims to sovereignty are illegitimate. Beyond that, all claims that follow in your stead. I don't believe there will ever be, you know, Jesus saying, any sovereign who would put himself in the place of God over God. That's what's happening here. Let's not miss it. Here is man judging God in the flesh. Is that right? <laughs> See, that's the strange thing about one reading of this trial. They're missing the conflict that is taking place between two kingdoms. What happens next heightens the ambiguity as to Pilate's response. He, you know, Jesus, he's standing there, he's robed in royal purple, the sign of the king. He has this 
thorn of crowns on. And they're debating sovereignty. Who runs things really? Jesus says, you're not in control, Pilate. And so the one who is supposed to represent Caesar is now threatened. You're no friend of Caesar. And so Pilate changes. He brings Jesus out a second time. And he does, instead of saying, you know, look at the man, he says, look at your king. And so here's Pilate's, you know, here's Caesar's representative. Uh, who's actually in this trial saying Jesus is the king of the Jews, he's innocent. And at this point, the Jews grow frantic. And they drop all pretense of a legal, a Jewish legal proceeding. And they cry, remember this is the high priests, this is the Sanhedrin. We have no king other than Caesar. Can you imagine coming into a church building and saying, I have no king but the President of the United States. I mean, that's the blasphemy. Because these are people who are representative of the king who is God. And they are awaiting the coming of the messianic king. And now they're saying they have no king but Caesar. So it is, you know, for the theocratic government of Israel, this is blasphemy. That's the very thing they're accusing Jesus of. This is maybe kind of the final denouement of, you know, that the Jews have turned from kings or from God to kings. And now God does not figure at all. And that was what he was afraid of, right? In granting them a king that God would not figure at all into that. That's what kings do. That's what absolute leaders do. They are abdicating their messianic hope. So as to excel even Pilate in their loyalty to Caesar, the God King Caesar. In a sense, they're saying Jewish tradition and law, it does not matter. So Pilate, he's not dissuaded though. He still says, he says, oh, shall I crucify your king? He says. And ultimately, you know, he he affirms this at the crucifixion. All of these events, by the way, are surrounding, look at chapter 19, verse 13. And this is the the passage, the, the verse that I want to look at a little bit. There are two alternative readings of chapter 19, verse 13. One of which has Pilate fully acknowledging that Jesus is the true judge. In place of the terms for judgment, we have the word that is uh, bama. It is the word that refers to the seat or throne from which one makes legal judgments. And this seat of judgment is located on the gabatha. John tells us this Hebrew or maybe Aramaic word, we're not sure, And this rings in the ears of the Jews because that's the the very name of the floor of the temple. Then in the midst of this scene, John tells us, it's the day of preparation for Passover. Now we get the theological significance of this trial. Death, 
the judgment passed on sin is going to be born. You know, that Christ is the Passover lamb that's going to cleanse the world of the sort of despicable death-dealing nature that we're encountering in all of those who come up against Jesus. Crucify him, crucify him. Rome, the Jews, the world, the law, the legal system, everything stands against Jesus. And I think this is the theological import of the trial of Jesus. And maybe in this, you know, if we follow the the received reading of John 19, 13, usually we would read this, he, Pilate, brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat. That is, Pilate is sitting in the judgment seat. There is an alternative reading. He, Pilate, led Jesus out and set him, Jesus, on the judgment seat. In this reading, Jesus and not Pilate is seated so as to exercise judgment. Pilate in this understanding is not simply refusing to judge, but is declaring Jesus the rightful judge. Pilate is not himself set in the seat of judgment. There is no trial. There is no punishment. And of course, whatever the reading, whether we follow this reading or not, that's true there is no judgment there is simply a handing over to death and the one who has been seated in the place of judgment is the one declared by Pilate king of the Jews by the earthly representative of Caesar the one pronouncing the judgment on both the Jews and Pilate Jesus who's saying you're the sinners is handed over in lieu of judgment. And so no judgment is passed by any earthly judge, but what the succession of people to whom Jesus is passed, handed over, they're each judged, right? By what they would do with Jesus. And when Jesus is handed over to us, in the form of whom? Where do we encounter Christ? The oppressed, the widow. The person in prison, the hungry, the poor. What you do to the least of these, Jesus says, you've done unto me. When Jesus is handed over to us, what we do with him means the judgment has come upon us. The trial continues. History is an open-ended trial in which no judgment has been passed upon Jesus. But what has happened to Jesus causes judgment to be unleashed throughout history. Pilate's state of mind, even apart from this reading, maybe this reading's not right. I don't know. There's a history of this reading. But whatever the reading, Pilate is plagued with doubt and fear surrounding the person of Jesus. And he, I think, concludes he's the rightful king. And this fits with both Matthew and Luke, in which Jesus is dressed in purple. He's given a scepter, a scepter, a king's scepter, and hailed as king of the Jews. It explicitly fits with an apocryphal gospel of Peter, written about 190, in which it says... 
The people put on him a purple robe and made him sit upon the seat of judgment, saying, Give righteous judgment, thou king of Israel. Harnack and Debellius and Justin uh, all say that it's Pilate who seeks Jesus in the place of judgment. Pilate certainly does not declare a judgment. And so Jesus is crucified outside of the city, outside of Roman law, outside of Jewish legal codes. And no judgment is ever passed. What does this mean? I believe it means that sovereignty, whether it's the sovereignty of a king or of a state, you know, this in the history of the world, what is sovereignty? It's the power over life. It's the power to dispose of life. The sovereign disposes of life, not necessarily on the basis of law, but because he can. In Rome, hundreds of slaves would be crucified, not because of the law, but because they can be. They're counted non-people. In this country, from the end of the Civil War to about 1940, Thousands of African Americans were lynched, not on the basis of the law, but through sheer power. In Germany, Nazi Germany, six million Jews were killed on the basis not of law, but sheer raw sovereign power. We could just go on through the genocides of the Native Americans, the genocides of the homeless, of people who have no country, the immigrant. Uh, the weak, the helpless. And so the law, you know, this is partly what's happening with Paul, right? Paul appeals to Caesar because he's a Roman citizen and the law is partly protecting him against Caesar because that's who wants to kill him and, you know, they're going to use the power of Caesar. Judgment is unnecessary where a victim falls outside of the law. That is legal judgment. And not in the sense that, you know, oh, they've broken the law, but in the sense that the law falls beneath. And I think this is what's happening in the case of Christ. Christ is in some way outside of the city. The law is not applicable. He cannot be saved. He cannot be protected. Just as African Americans or the Jews in Nazi Germany or uh, the, you know, those who are without, you know, those who are continually handed over. Maybe that's the condition of whole classes of people that I believe we are to identify with. In other words, if we miss this, if we imagine that the law and justice system and court system and human justice is adequate, we're going to miss that Christianity is directly addressing the inadequacy of these things. So I think the difference that the trial of Jesus will make and that the life and death of Jesus make is this notion of sovereignty, that the king rules through the power of heaven. No, there's only one king. That's King Jesus. And he's the only legitimate king. The easy presumption that lives can be disposed of without protest, I believe, is forever contradicted by the trial of Jesus. 
Caesar could once claim to be sovereign God. That was his claim. Without contradiction. But after Christ, history is an open-ended trial in which judgment is unfolding and is presumed to fall upon those who would take the presumption unto themselves that they can judge. The principalities and powers which would in some way take the power of judgment are now stopped short. And we're all witness to the judgments of history in which the oppressed serve as the markers of judgment. Those who pass sovereign judgments of holocausts, genocides, lynchings, mass slaughters, maybe just simply capital punishment, are exposed as evil usurpers. It would probably not have occurred to anyone prior to Christ to question the power or moral right of the king or the emperor, you know, the sovereign, to take life. That was just what he could do. Now judgment is continually rendered according to what you do to the least of these. The imprisoned, the impoverished, the hungry, the thirsty. Judgment is rendered on the basis of how we would treat these. And this is the final scene in the book of Matthew. In which the Son of Man is on the throne. He's in the place of sovereignty. Judgment is held in abeyance at the trial of Jesus. But now judgment through the course of history has shown us who the true sovereign is. Jesus is king. He who would presume to sit in the place of judgment, the rightful place of Christ, where life is at the disposal of the sovereign, commits the final blasphemy of usurping the king of God.